And that's when I knew, you know, I asked them some questions on, you know, what do you look for? How do you value businesses? They were very upfront about it and, you know, kind of gave me some guidelines. And he said, you know, you really need to do X, Y, and Z. And the more you do of it, the more value your, your business will have to companies like mine. Even if I don't buy you, that the other companies will. So I just followed their advice kind of generically. And I knew back then, you know, probably 12 years, 10, 12 years before I sold my business, that that's how it would end at some point. I just didn't know when and for how much. The prices were inflated. It was, it was a very interesting time. I, I equated it. I told my wife, I said, you know, I feel like the hot chick at prom because everybody wants me. Everybody's looking at me. It was just awesome, right? Like you're like the most, you just, it was really kind of cool. Everybody wants to take you to dinner. Everybody want to meet with you and, and whatever. It's, it's fascinating, right? Because I'm the one used to using the court people for, you know, making the sale and all that. And then they're courting me, which is out of character for how I've been doing business for 20 years. And, and I'll tell you the day you sign the papers that ends. Welcome millionaires and future millionaires. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, the show where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their portfolio allocation. Now to your host, Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 312. Not going to make a big long intro today because it's not uh, quite necessary. This is a follow-up with Chad where we talk all things small business and selling to private equity and getting a little bit of the details that we can that aren't under uh, confidentiality agreements. And uh, yeah, so hope you enjoy. It's a pretty raw discussion on, uh, on, on, on my take from uh, selling to some of these companies, also buying several. And then also his going through that process uh, as a seller as well. So uh, looking forward to it. Hope you enjoy. Stay in the show. We've got Chad. We're actually doing part two today. So yesterday we discussed a little bit about him, his story, his journey, and his net worth. And today we're going to get a little bit into the weeds and have kind of a, a nice dialogue about selling a business, working with private equity firms, and what that looks like, especially as he's gone through this process. And on the flip side, I've done it myself and also sat on the side of the PE firm and, and acquired several businesses and then doing more roll-up type stuff. So, Chad, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's let's just begin here a little bit. You start this business and for our listeners, I mean, roughly what was your growth strategy in those early years and how much were you kind of growing in, in those first few years? You know, I grew as fast as my cash would allow. That was kind of my strategy. And like to give you an idea, I think back in the day, you know, maybe the first year we did like 250, next year, maybe, four, you know, 250,000, 450, 750, like 1.2. And just kind of that pace, I, I felt pretty comfortable. You know, you're trying to buy equipment and, and obtain employees and grow sales and cash flow. And I just didn't want to grow too fast. I think growing too fast could be worse than not growing at all, to be honest with you. So that was just kind of, I just wanted to keep it consistent, right? It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. So 
I wanted solid growth, but obtainable growth. Yeah, for sure. And were you the one handling all of the sales and sales growth in those early years? Yeah, I did. You know, I was a primary salesperson, you know, until we hit about 10 employees or so. And then I started bringing on salespeople that that's, you know, all they did for me was, you know, outside sales and what have you. And that that really changed everything. Right. Because then you could be growing without me being the person to actually go out there and, and grow it. That was uh, it was an awesome thing to have salespeople helping you. Was there a certain level of cash or cash flow that you methodically invested or reinvested back in the business for growth versus taking home? I was not methodical about it. The the problem being is you never had a consistent, like I never, it was never consistent, right? You'd get a bunch of cash in and then you'd have expenses and, and cash went out and maybe you'd have one big contract that didn't pay or paid late. So it was really not consistent. And I, we lived off my wife's salary for, you know, I took out very little money, you know, maybe ten fifteen thousand $15,000 a year for probably five years. So we just, you know, t- stuffed all the money back into the business. It just kept, you know, we just didn't want to take any money out. We knew it needed to be in the business to grow. What would you have done, let's just hypothetically, or maybe not have thought through this, had you not had your wife's salary when you were trying to grow that business? Would you have just grown slower and taken a little more to live on or literally lived out of a trailer? Yeah, I would, I would, I would have lived super, super meager. I would have just, you know, back in the day when we uh, were, you know, had some college roommates and were like, dude, we're just going to live like gerbils so that you could just spend no money and, you know, you still had fun. You did things that just didn't cost money. Right. And I, I would have done that because borrowing money was not going to be an option for me. I, I'm not a big fan of, of leverage when it comes to growing a business like that, especially, you know, when you're first starting, I think more cash in the beginning would have been harmful because it made me figure out how to do more with less and if I could have just thrown money at it, I don't think that would have solved my my problems necessarily. It could have created some. So, yeah, that's what I would have done. Yeah. So fast forward, you go through this growth period. Did you ever have a year where you didn't grow or you kind of had a, a you know retraction in, with your business at all? You know, in the beginning, so, I mean, I started, you know, I started really growing my business in like 2009, um, prior to that, I had some a retraction, you know, like 2007, eight or what have you. That's when it really, you know, it hit me there. And then from then on, I don't think I had a, a retraction. I had some years that were flatter or some years where I changed up some strategies, you know, changing different markets and stuff, or maybe I kind of maintained or was flatter or maybe just, you know, gained a little bit, but we were pretty consistent, pretty consistent growth. It was almost to the point where you could predict it. It was fun. That's nice. So fast forward after all these years of growing, it was total of how many again? 20 something? Yeah, 23. 23. So you get to call it the 20 year mark. Did you have an exit plan in place at all around that time? You know, I I, I can tell you my exit plan or my exit strategy is way before that though. I knew it when 
I knew some of these businesses like mine would would sell for a, a chunk of dough, right? And I didn't know how it happened or why, or I didn't, I just knew that that was the end result. But, you know, I had a, it was early on, it was like 2010, 11, maybe. I probably had like seven, eight employees at the time. And I had a Fortune 500 company contact me and they're like, hey, you know, we'd like to talk to you about buying your business or just start a relationship, what have you. And I thought, oh, that's cool. I'll meet with you. And he, he came, they came and met with me and we talked and I told him, I told him how many employees I had, and he told me my gross sales, like within fifty thousand dollars, right? I think I told him I had like seven, eight employees, nine employees. He's like, "Oh, you're doing one point two. and I'm like, "How did you know that?" And he goes, "Oh, all businesses are the same. It's all, it, we just know it. It's easy. It's just how you know you can't be doing twelve million dollars because you don't have enough employees, and if you're doing four hundred thousand, you're broke. So it, it's you know I kind of grasp that concept." And that's when I knew, you know, I asked them some questions on, you know, what do you look for? How do you value businesses? They were very upfront about it and, you know, kind of gave me some guidelines. And he said, you know, you really need to do X, Y, and Z. And the more you do of it, the more value your, your business will have to companies like mine. Even if I don't buy you, the, the other companies will. So I just followed their advice kind of generically and I knew back then, you know, probably 12 years, 10, 12 years before I sold my business, that that's how it would end at some point. I just didn't know when and for how much. For sure. So as you got closer to that point, what made it you kind of start flipping that switch and start exploring like, hey, maybe this is the opportunity. Maybe this is the time. Was it your age? Was it? Any external factors, any internal factors? What kind of lead us through that process that, that you took in those last couple of years to get ready to, to, to transact? So I fielded offers on my business every couple of years or so all the way through because I wanted to meet more end buyers, right? So, it, it, I, you know, I always wanted, and I wanted their opinion on what my business is worth and what they liked, what they didn't like, and just kind of learning the end customer for me. And then as it got towards the end, it was really more of a, a number than a, a time. And I just knew if I got to, to my number and I, I would be okay to exit at that time. It didn't matter. If it took an extra five years, fine. If it was that day, fine. But I really wanted to just hit my number. And, and that was kind of the, the goal of the whole deal. Good stuff, man. So let's let's uh, let's dig into the the weeds and the details. So you start this process, call it year twenty two. How I mean, just for our listeners, give them an idea of like how long and grueling these this process can be. So there's there's a couple parts of the process. You know, there's it, it really is the before you sign the papers and after you sign the papers and. One is very exciting, and that's before you sign the papers. And then after you sign the papers, the excitement is followed by extreme amounts of stress that are just unbelievable. So let's talk about the, the front part there. The front part, when you're contacting companies and companies are contacting you and you're fielding offers and you know you got to get your, uh, your attorney involved, you have to have – if you're going to do – so a PE is private equity, right? It's kind of 
I would consider like a hedge fund, right? Is that, would that be accurate? Like, are they typically a hedge fund? Is that what you consider it? Well, not necessarily. I look at private equity and hedge funds in a completely different asset class just because hedge fund strategies can go, you know, depending on what the hedge fund is and private equity, we get in the weeds and all this, but sometimes those guys will go take a specific strategy, you know, with a, with a hedge fund and they were, you know, they're going to play in the public markets or they're going to play in, you know, this specific industry and only this industry and, you know, buy puts and calls and all sorts of different kinds of strategy around there. Whereas private equity typically is going to raise a fund specifically to go after, you know, a certain type of industry and either do some sort of roll up or try to put together a few pieces that will then create, you know, kind of a, a stronger sum of a handful of parts. Right? right. And so I look at those very differently personally, having worked with hedge funds and then having worked on several private equity funds when I was at PwC. And then now having been on the PE side, I kind of separate them quite a bit because PE typically will have a much more calculated end game exit game be typically more involved in, you know, execution of strategy and, you know, hiring operations sometimes, whereas hedge funds typically don't, they, they, they want to write the check and, you know, play the, play the mathematical game more so than get involved in some of those other things. Right. Okay. No, that's, that's good to know. It's a little over my head at that point, to be honest with you. Um, I kind of knew what I needed to know and there's probably a lot of things I didn't know, obviously, but when you're, when we're going into that, you know, you could have all kinds of different people wanting to purchase your business. You know, I had local companies, maybe an, an HVAC company. He was like, I would like to buy your business because it'd be a good fit for them or what have you, or they want my customer base or, or whatever. And, and then, you know, there's PE that I end up going with. And, you know, there's all kinds of different people that are going to, that can offer you some money and, and they're, they value it very differently depending on what they're trying to get accomplished. So it, it was completely, it was super fascinating. I mean, I had probably 30 offers, not, not offers, but in inquiries, let's put it that way. And probably the 60 days prior to me signing, but that was right after COVID started slowing down a little bit and they had, you know, 2020 money that nobody spent and 2021 money that they wanted to spend. So there's a lot of money and some of the businesses that were available were now no longer in good shape. So the prices were inflated. It was, it was a very interesting time. I, I equated it. I told my wife, I says, you know, I feel like the hot chick at prom because everybody wants me. Everybody's looking at me. It was just awesome. Right? Like you're like the most, you just, it was really kind of cool. Everybody wants to take you to dinner. Everybody want to meet with you and, and whatever. It's, it's fascinating, right? Because I'm the one used to using the court people for you know making the sale and all that. And then they're courting me, which is out of character for how I've been doing business for 20 years. And, and I'll tell you, the day you sign the papers, that ends. It is like you're just another person. It's you're done. It's over with. It's just it is. It's over. It, it's just that simple. But it's quite the process. And I think that if you decide you're going to sell your business, you need, a, you need a very good CPA 
you have to have uh, an attorney that specializes in business transactions. You can't go get your uncle who's an attorney. You can't go get a divorce attorney. No general attorney. It's super specific to these transactions. And if you don't have one, you'll fail 100% of the time. And I think you also need like a financial team to help you. I learned a lot from my financial team while going through the transaction. So I think you really have to have those three pieces at a, a very minimum from my side. Yeah, I want to I want to dive into a little bit of that because that, that that's one thing having transacted myself in in so many different scenarios in the small business space. One of my biggest gripes is a lot of times is opposing counsel just isn't well versed enough in transactions and and kind of what's market and what's not. And a lot of times we end up kind of hand holding through that process and and you know the sellers to to their credit, you know they're they're doing this one time probably in their life, right? Where on the other side of the table, we do this every day or in some cases pretty frequently. And so it's, it's a normal kind of, you know, verbiage and another language that we just speak. Whereas sellers like, look, I've been doing this for all these years and it's not like I sell businesses every single day at all. So this is the first time I'm doing it, but a lot of them go and get, you know, the attorney they've been working with or they put their operating agreement together from the beginning or whatever to be their transaction attorney. And sometimes it can cause, you know, problems and issues. So I'm glad you bring, bring that point up in regards to your team. Did you end up hiring a, a broker at all as part of this process or, or a banker? No, I didn't, I didn't do a broker. I had uh, some people that, you know, were helping me, but they were on the, the, the buying side. So, I mean, I don't know how much help there. They, they are helping you because they want to complete a transaction because they don't get paid if they don't complete a transaction. So they're willing to, they want to educate you at least enough to where you can get the transaction completed, right? If you go get that ador- divorce attorney, that transaction is dead in the water. So they have to educate you on these, these items so that you have the at least a little bit of ability to follow through with the transaction because it's it's a once in a lifetime event for most business owners. They're not going to grow up another business and do it another ten years or fifteen years. It's usually it's one and done, especially if it's a big one, and you don't have that skill set. So you have to have qualified people around you that will help you complete it, and and it's. It's epic. It's north of epic. It, it is, yeah, it is the, the biggest experience you'll ever have in your entire life, for sure. So in, in regards to your team, how did you find the attorney, the CPA, the the financial personnel that you were using for this transaction? So as I was going through the process of finding a company that I wanted to sell my business to, you know, they, I would ask them, Hey man, do you, do you have a good attorney that you would recommend? You know, do you have financial teams? And I'd ask them for these pieces of the puzzle. And, you know, some of these people would tell me, you know, they'd give me, you know, try this guy, try this guy. I've had good luck using these people before. And I would go out and interview 
these teams and find out if they were a good fit for me. And funny thing is, is when we, when I would do it, I'd have my wife do it with me and I would literally, you know, ask them a bunch of questions. My wife wouldn't say a single thing. She would, she just wouldn't say anything. And then we'd get done and I go, what do you think? And she's like, I don't like those people. I'm like, all right. And that would pretty much be it right then and there, you know, and she has no idea about lawyers and some of these people. And, and I guess I don't either really. And we just kind of went off of how we felt about them. And you could tell who was going to do a great job and who was not. It was like really obvious to me. So, and, and I felt like I had an awesome attorney and I, I used my same CPA and then I acquired a financial team who I still use this day. And I think they're phenomenal. So I just feel like I was really lucky in that aspect to get those people surrounding me and you have to have them. It's an absolute must. Were they all local or did you look across the nation? So my attorney was local and my financial team is uh, across the nation. Yeah. And they, so the funny thing is like my, my financial team is they, they don't take very many clients and I think they're closed at this point in time. I don't think they're, I don't even think they're taking more to be honest with you. And in order to be their client, you have to be a current business owner owner or a former business owner and have a net worth of $10 million or more. They won't take you otherwise. Like if you got 20 million, you've never owned a business. Like they don't like, we only want business owners net worth of 10 million. So like I'm the small guy in their group of, you know, people that they help. I'm like, wow, that's, that's fascinating. But it kind of, it kind of humbles you, you know, when they got 50 clients and you're the small guy in the totem pole, I'm like, wow, that's, <laughs> they're, they're awesome to deal with. So I'm, I'm super happy. And, and what did they help you with as part of this transaction? So they had a, there's, there was like three guys, right? And they've all kind of got their specialty. You know, one of the guys buys and sells stocks. He understands that really well. You know, another guy um, knows a lot of people and he'll help you if you want to, if you need an attorney or a CPA or whatever, he's, they can point in the right direction. And then the other guy came from PE. So he helped me. He understood, like he could talk that lingo, you know, cause they talk, they, they talk Greek, right? They don't talk English. It's a weird language. They talk like, if you don't know all the, you know, the vocabulary, it's hard to keep, it's really hard to keep up with it. And he knew it. So he would help me, you know, through the transaction. He's like, Hey, once you signed, you're going to expect this over the next 10 days. And here's going to be your problems. And, you know, if I had an issue, I could call him up and, and he would help me through it. Cause he understood it. it, it you know, so each, there was a bunch of people that had different resources for me and it was, it was just, it was just awesome. It just is. And did you pay them by the hour or a flat fee or what was the structure there? So my financial team, that's just part of when you keep your money with them. So they get, uh, uh, you know, a small percentage. That's like a point something percent, um, for managing your money. So that was just included in the, and, and that, that's just part of the service that they offer and that. So that was kind of gotcha. And then in terms of your CPA and attorney, did you pay them by the hour? Yeah, I paid them by the hour. And that's kind of scary. You know, the, 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 the CPA is not that big a deal. That's not, it's kind of cut and dry for them. 
So, you know, maybe it's 10 hours or something like that. It's not much, right? But, you know, my CPA or my attorney, he had three people on my transaction. And when we had a phone call, we had a meeting, it was at least three people. And then they're getting paid however much an hour, a lot, you know, 250 to 350 an hour. So each, each hour is costing you a better part of a grand. And it's, it's not an hour. It's by the, it's by 10 minute increments, right? <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it's crazy. And you don't know what it's going to end up costing you going into it. They give you an idea of like, it'll probably run you 50 K. It could be 70. It could be 30. I don't know. And you're like, wow, that's a lot of money to not know. You know, I mean, that's just, it's frightening. So For sure. It's very interesting. And, and and did your attorney bill you at the transaction close and get paid then, or did they pay get, bill you along the way? So I, I had to put up a chunk up front. I forget what it was, but maybe 15, 20 grand. And then the balance came out after uh, close. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, and, and that was kind of new in some regards for me when I sold. When we sold, that uh, you know that that final bill gets slapped down, and I remember I was sweating for a few months, as you mentioned. Like you have no idea what's going to cost, and here you are, you know, several months in. <laughs> like, how much is that bill going to be? And of course, you know. They want to just throw it into the end because they know it's going to be a small dollar amount and you're not going to worry if there's zeros on theirs when you're getting zeros on yours type thing. But uh, that bill's big and it hurts a lot more if you have to pay it before than it does when you get paid, you know, all at the same time. But they they like to slip those in right there along with bankers, transaction fees, et cetera, right all at the end. Yeah. You know, and like my, my attorney did every month I would get a statement or basically an invoice. I didn't have to pay it. He would say, oh, this month it cost this, this month it cost that. So I, I, I kind of saw where it was progressing. But, you know, I was also told, told that in the closing moments, you know, like the let's say the last week, that's really where it ramps up. So you don't really know until it's over what it yep. costs you, you know? So. Yep. So walk us through, I mean, from, from kind of start to finish, how long did it take? So that's called the, the, from after you sign until close is called due diligence, right? And that is, and, and when we sign, you're, you're talking about signing an LOI, correct? Yeah. Letter of intent. You sign that and it's kind of like a, a real estate deal, right? You sign the contract and then everybody works towards closing the contract. And then you have your, your actual sale, your closing date at a, a point in time. You know, it took me, I think we were right at 60 days. Well, that's not bad. That's pretty quick. It was, it was quick. We were, we were, were very, very, very organized with our books and we could grab information rapidly. So we could provide them all the information that they needed. And we knew ahead of time what was coming I mean, it, it is crazy, right? Like you're going to give them three years of tax returns, all your, your checking account statements for the prior three years, you know, everything. You give them all your books. Here's all my books. Here's everything. It's just crazy everything they ask. 
and you just, it's the biggest information dump you, you've ever thought of, you know, all your payroll stuff for the last, you know, three years, it's just, you know, inventory of everything, like your vehicles, any big equipment, they want a complete list. So we started doing that months in advance because we knew it was coming, right? So we kind of had, you know, lists already started and you just start giving them information. But it you literally stop working on your business and you work on the transaction. Like it's, it's almost, it's a full-time job. It just is. And then for sure. Did anybody else on your team know that this was going on or was this all you and, and kind of your external team that had a, to, to fill due diligence requests? It was just me and my wife that did this. And I would ask people for information, but I think some people, maybe some employees are kind of wondering at, at a time there. Cause I was asking for some, I always ask for a lot of information cause I'm always checking stuff out, but I was asking for different information. Like, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And you kind of whatever. But I think some were, you know, some of the office staff maybe were wondering what was going on, but yeah, I, I kept it quiet. I think I was probably two weeks out and I had like a 90, 95% certainty of close. You know, we'd went through some interesting conversations with the, the buyer. So I thought we were, you know, pretty much there and then I started telling uh, a key employee or two, you know, that I could trust and that we're going to need to know, you know, yeah, for sure. For sure. Walk us through kind of the emotions and the emotional roller coaster that, that, that takes place in, in a transaction like this. Granted, you only had 60 days probably to write it. So that's not too bad. But what, what did that look like for you? It is, it is extremely, extremely, extremely emotional. Like the, when you're before you get, you know, you sign your LOI, then it's really emotional because you've been working on this business for however many years and you, you want to, you know, am I making the right decision? Is it the right time to do this transaction? All these questions and should I wait or should I try to find another buyer who might pay me more? And, and you just, you know, and then the other part of, the, of it too is, you know, what does the buyer want from you after the close? Do you have to stay for a year or two or can you just walk and, you know, or do you want to stay or do you want to walk it? it you know, there's all these things and, and you're, you're not prepared for it, but you've got to deal with it. And, and, and then when you sign the LOI, you know, you're, you're kind of relieved because you made the decision and you're like, okay, you catch your breath. And then you start with the due diligence and then that is a different level of stress. I, I, that was easily the most stressful point in my life because you, you are now out of your element. It's like getting a brand new job, right? And you're, you're starting a brand new job and it's to sell a business, which you have no business doing because you have no skill set for any of it. And, but here you are in the middle of the biggest transaction of your life. And it is terrifying. It's scary. It's, it's very interesting. I, I sort of enjoyed most of it, but it, it is like the scariest thing I, I've ever done by far. For sure. Were there any points where you thought, man, this is not the right thing to do, or this is probably not going to work out, or they're beating me up too much on this request or that request or. Oh, uh, you know, 
I'm sure that there's information that they didn't get that they wanted. I, I mean, because they asked for everything, right? And if you didn't track it on some level or have a way to go back and find it, some of that information is difficult to obtain. So there were times where I'd be like, hey, guys, I mean, what's our work around here? Because, like, I, I don't you know, t- tell me how I solve the problem for you. Cause I don't know. I, this is above my pay grade. I don't know how to get there, you know? And then they would, they would tell me, Hey, you know what? Do the best you can. Maybe find me this information. We can come in from the back door and, and, you know, figure it out. And, and you just do the, you know, the best you can. And it's interesting too, when you're going through the DD, you start off, there's like three processes or three phases of it. You, you'll probably know this better than me, but I think we went through like the accounting part. And then I know we had like the, the legal part and, and you'd have all these groups. Right. And I remember the first call I had, it was a zoom, right. And the first zoom I had, my screen had like 20 people. There are like four or five people from each, you know, division of the, the company and then the CEO, the CFO, the COO and all these people. And it's like them against me. And that is that's crazy intimidating. I mean, that's a very expensive meeting. Right. And they're just grilling you. And, you know, we need this. We need that. How about this? Why would you do that? You know, all these these questions and some of these questions you've never even thought of. So it's. It's a very interesting process. Yeah, you thought your $1,000 an hour call with your attorneys was expensive. That call with 20 of them, I can't even imagine what the what the cost of some of those calls were, right? Yeah, yeah. And then there's times where my attorneys would get on also, right? You know, we went through the, some of the legal stuff and whatever, you know, my attorneys wanted to be there for some of it. So it was costing me a bunch of money too. It was, uh, it, it's, it's very, it's, it's fascinating. It's a learning curve for sure. Did you have to go through a, a Q of E or quality of earnings process as well from their end? Yeah. Yeah. Talk, talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, were you well prepared for that knowing that you were probably going to have to do it or was that a, a, a kind of an eye opening and awakening experience? It, it was, it was probably eye opening. You know, I, I think like the, the saving grace for me is I was very comfortable with my books. I, I got a degree in finance right back in the day and I've spent a lot of time looking at numbers and reports and, and stuff like that. I understand a PL, you know, very well. So I could go through and at least hang on some level, you know, and I faked it a little bit here and there. But when you go through the QV, that's, it's, it's very interesting. And you got to, you know, one thing that, you know, you're, you're working for EBITDA, that's that, at least for me, that's what, that I, I work toward is, you know, I, I was getting paid off of EBITDA and, you know, if your business, let's say your business makes a million dollars, Hey, that's good. Congratulations. But you can, there's all these owner ad backs, you know, like my truck, my fuel, uh, some of the expenses I declared, you know, for me above and beyond normal business expenses, I add those back on top of EBITDA, which increases my sales price because those expenses will be gone. So you need to make sure that those get added back in to the, the, the EBITDA and, 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 and they're usually pretty good about it, but 
you're going to have to go find those expenses. They're not going to go find them for you. You need to know where they are and what and what they are. Yeah, you're going to have like two, three levers, levels of proof, right? Yeah, yeah. That was that was easy for me because I had very very clean books and what have you. But you know, and they can see it for years and years, so that it was it was there. But you definitely have to, you know, and health insurance is easy, right? So you know that's an ad back, but you can see it from the the health insurance statement from our health insurance company, right? So there it is, boom. It's just that easy. So getting to the the end, the the, the wire is about to come in. I mean, emotionally, was there anything that you did to kind of, hey, this is going to happen and, you know, that wire comes in, this transaction's done and my life to some degree changes the next day and and, and the subsequent months and, and years after? Yeah, it changes in in some aspects, some aspects not. It's it's a huge relief. Like it is, if you've ever tried to accomplish something that was like a, I guess like maybe you could call it like graduating high school, right? Or, or college. Like there's an end. It's a final. It's over with. It's, that's my last step. Now I'm done. And you feel that weight lift off of you. You, you definitely feel that here. Like the weight is lifted. And it's not even because you've got a lot of money. It's just because DD's over with. It's all like the transaction's over. That is phenomenal. You almost at that point don't even care about the money. You're just like, is this done? I'm done getting prodded and poked and examined. And you're just so happy that it's just over with, you know? And then a chunk of money shows up and, and that's exciting. But honestly, like we didn't go out for dinner or celebrate through a big ass party, nothing. Like, we're just like, I just want to, like, sit on the couch and just just veg out. Maybe, you know, talk to me in a week or something, you know. It's, just, <laughs> it was, it's overwhelming. It just is. It's crazy. Is there any advice that you would give to somebody, you know, for that first week after, you know, closing a transaction? I mean, is, is the best advice to just, hey, make sure you veg out before you make any decisions and, you know, sit on the couch and hang out because it is such a grueling process to go through due diligence and the emotional roller coaster of getting to a, a closing. Yeah. I think that the, the, maybe the best advice is to not make big decisions at like kind of a spur of the moment deal. You know, we had a, a plan of what we wanted to do the next year or so. So we were very deliberate on, on what we were going to do. So we, we knew where we were going, but we didn't go out and, you know, we still have the same cars we had prior to the close. It's, they haven't changed. It's been a couple of years that so we're happy with what we got. And, you know, other than our boat, which we knew we were going to make a big purchase for that, our life hasn't changed that much. We will go out for a n nice dinner and not think twice about it, but eh, all in all, it's, it's, we don't have to work. That's probably our, we have a freedom of time, which to me is the, the biggest part of this is you can do what you want when you want more so than the extra money. I, I think that the freedom of time is really the, the best part of the whole equation here. Yeah. 
Are you glad that you sold at what many would consider, you know, a younger age versus maybe waiting another decade or so towards a traditional retirement age? Well, I think retire, retirement is a number, not an age. You know, my parents retired in their mid fifties. They they did not have a ton of money, but they they had enough to retire. They they were very very frugal. My mom still is, and I think having time to me is, is way more important than working and acquiring more money. You know, especially like you know, I ask people all the time. I go, hey, if you've got a million dollars, you can live a certain lifestyle, and you know that's cool. And if you've got five million dollars. You, you, there's a pretty big gap between one million and five million. I mean, you can you can live a, a, a little bit better lifestyle, but from five million to ten million, I don't know. Like, are you going to buy more stuff or go on cooler vacations? Or I, I don't I don't know. And I think you really got to get up to a hundred million before it really changes. You know, so you got to get a lot before you're going to live that much different of a lifestyle. And that stuff doesn't excite me anyways, you know? I mean, I don't need a jet. I'm kind of an average dude when it comes to a lot of things. I don't like super fancy dinners and fancy clothes, and I don't want to live in a fancy neighborhood and, and all that stuff. So I'm very boring in that aspect, you know? I, I don't know. So to me, er, retiring early and getting the number I wanted was – the only goal, not so much age was not, was never part of it. If it was 70 or if it was 35, that would have been fine by me. In regards to working with private equity and, and transacting, you know, with, with them, is there anything that, that you were thinking along the way, like, what the heck, what are they doing? Why are they doing it this way? What, what are they thinking? Did you have any of those conversations after the fact? Oh, I still have them to this day. You know, they're 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 different than and, and you know the. I guess the concept you kind of have to explain the concept of of PE a little bit, right? So they're going to take similar businesses and group them all together and kind of make them all operate the same, right? So my business, let's say I used QuickBooks, but they use Sage, so but I didn't use QuickBooks. So let's say that. So everything's going to go to Sage. And let's say I run my vehicles a certain way in a certain program and they use a different program. It's all going to change. So they really want to take everything and put it together as, as one business. So they look at it so differently than, than I would, right? I'm doing what makes sense for my market and my employees. And, and that's that. And they're just going to do what they do across all markets and it doesn't always make sense to me, but I'm not trying to get accomplished what they're trying. You know, they're trying to sell a, a you know, a three, four, $500 million company or whatever they're going to sell. Right. So their goals and, and objectives are different. So I try to look at it from their standpoint, but I, I really, really struggled with watching how they do some things and how they think. And it's just, you know, you, you think that maybe they're super polished and maybe some are, but a lot of it, and, and you can probably tell me better than this is I think some of it, they're kind of winging it a little bit. 
you know, I mean, do you see the, do you ever see PE companies? They're kind of winging it a little bit or they're over their skis or, you know, I'm sure you saw some of that. Of course. (laughs) You know, so I, I think that, you know, if, especially back in that time, you know, a year and a half ago, they're just trying to do as many transactions as fast as they could and just acquire companies. And then they were just going to figure it out. And I think all the companies were like that, not just the one that purchased me. And they're just, we need to conquer them now because they're not going to be available in, you know, six months or a year. So they just went crazy. It was, uh, it was fascinating. And you ended up rolling a little bit, right? Yeah. That's another thing that I, I learned along the way. And, and people probably don't even know what rolling is it means, but basically you take some of your money and you put it back into the, the PE company, the, the company that bought you, you put it back in with them. And you know, the concept of like, I would consider my company probably was like a roll up, I would guess. Right. And so you're there, they're buying me at a, at a, let's say they're buying me at a multiple of five and, and, and I'm, you know, much smaller than they are as a whole. And then as a $500 million company, they might be a multiple of 10. So they're doubling their money the day they buy me. Basically it's a little oversimplified for sure, but that's the concept, right? Buy small companies, put it inside of a bigger company, grow it. And you know, that's how they, that's part, maybe even some efficiencies and the bigger you, the, the PE company gets, they can, you know, there's a different group of buyers out there to buy the rather large companies. So they're just basically they're on customers, somebody, you know, way different and they know what their end customers looking for. So that's just kind of uh, how they, they do it. You know, it's uh, and I think you need to know about the roll up because I, they were not going to offer that. And some of the, most of the companies would if you asked for it, but none of them were going to offer it to you. So you had to ask. And there's quite a few of the people that um, I was in negotiations with that I did ask them about that. And then they're like, oh, yeah, if that's something you really want to do, we can do that. So so on your end, with did you see most people, would they roll money or, or not? Yeah, we did stuff all 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 across the board, depending on you know who it was, what the transaction was, and you know from the P side to some degree, you like depending on you know if you're going to a new market or a new space, new industry. Sometimes it's nice to have a seller role because that gives you comfort that they're committed to you know what that business is. They're not selling you a bag of goods. They're saying, hey, look, I I believe in you. I just want to take some chips off the table. And so I'm willing to essentially put some skin in the game with you. And in some cases, you know, even now we've, we've completely bought out some owners and they still work with us, you know, which I think is a testament to you know, doing the right thing and, and, and them wanting to one, take chips off the table, but two, still be involved in the business such to have a nice transition period. And that always makes things a lot smoother. Granted, everybody has their own wishes and we kind of have to, you know, no matter if it's been you know, me doing lumber building material, you know, hardware store acquisitions or, you know, on the, on the private equity side, it's nice to have 
you know, kind of a different mix and be able to, you know, do different things from our side, just in case a seller says, Hey, look, I just want to be completely out day one or no, I do want to do, you know, or work in a part-time capacity or I want to transition like this or whatever and what have you. But every deal is different, man. And it just kind of depends on, on, you know, in other cases too, we've done earnouts, right? Where it's like, Hey, we couldn't get there you know, from a valuation standpoint and, and the way to bridge that gap was to, to do an earnout, And so, you know, they're highly incentivized now to stay on and hit that earnout because they want to get that, you know, extra chunk of money. Right. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So yeah, I, I think that's one thing worth mentioning too, you know, because I had a lot of friends that asked a thousand questions, right. Cause they're fascinated because, you know, they probably don't know anybody that sold a business like this. Right. So they're like, Hey man, how's this? How's that? And, and, and a bunch of questions. And I'm like, you know, you gotta, you gotta think of it, you know, like if you have a, a an F one fifty of a certain year with some, some options on it, right. You can go and you know, roughly what it's worth and you know, your house, you got a four bedroom, you know, three bath house, in a neighborhood, you pretty much know what that's worth, right? Give or take a seat. Yeah, we got Zillow. We got Cape Kelly Blue Book. We got all these other appraisal you know, things, right, for those types of items. <laughs> yeah. But a business, I mean, I had some people that were, you know, thought it was worth half, you know, of what I ended up selling it for. And some even thought it was worth less. And, and they just, you know, the valuations are all over the place, so just some someone says your business is worth a million dollars, it might be worth five you to the right person, right? And you just have to find that right person and then you'll get maximum value. So it's it's very it's very interesting. It's not an F one fifty, man. It's it's a business and they are all unique. They just are. Yeah, no, it's true. And in private equity, you know, typically when you're going to go after a, a, you know, what we would call a platform, so it's going to be a, essentially kind of a, a new industry or kind of a an anchor uh, acquisition. Typically, you're willing to lean in and pay a little bit more because, as you mentioned later or earlier, I mean, you know, the the bolt-ons or the next acquisitions that may be smaller, you're you're are going to be accretive. You know, you might pay a higher multiple for that big first one because you want to get in and get in the game and those next ones you're going to pay end up paying a little bit lower multiple. And so everything will be accretive, you know, from a private equity and investment standpoint that as you do a roll up or as you do more acquisitions. So sometimes, yeah, you're right that, that some, you know, the right buyer may lean in or, or may find more value in what you've built because it, you know, causes synergies with what they may have in their portfolio or, you know, the one thing we haven't really hit on too is there's life cycles in private equity funds, or at least a lot of private equity funds where, you know, they've, they've raised money, they've raised this fund, they got to go put it to work. It has timing, uh, you know, on it, whether it's five years, seven years, 10 years from an exit standpoint that they kind of need to cycle through, make the investments and get a return for their investors. Or, you know, it's gonna be really hard to, uh, you know, raise the next fund and, and, and build a track record. And so, there's always a timing game that they're playing. Same thing with the with the venture capitalists and the in the VC world. So, always looking for deals, as I as I like to say. Yeah, yeah. And both those statements you said are I, I I've seen both right. Like the the lifespan, you know, and it could be three years, five years, but they do have a 
you know, we would like to, in this time frame, exit, you know, whenever it makes sense and we find the right buyer, they're, they're going to exit. A big business comes in and buys the, the company and is willing to pay a larger multiple. Oh yeah. For for getting like a platform. Yeah. In my city. Yeah. Watch that. I had a, um, a fortune 500 company come in and buy, there was like two big ones at the time and they bought one of the big ones and they knew a competitor was going to enter the market, you know, like, so they, they had a competitor from another state and then this fortune 500 company, both going after the same company. And they're like, you know what? We want to be in your market. And they went in there and paid top dollar, like really top dollar to keep yep. the other company out and to get them in the market. And yep. then they started buying up all these smaller companies after that. You know, I think, what do you call them, like tuck-ins or something like yep, that. Yep, tuck-ins or add-ons or, yep. And he'd buy these small ones and, you know, because they were a player in town. It was, uh, it was fascinating. But that was totally their strategy, man. And they just, you know, and that was 15 years ago. But wow. It's fascinating to watch. For sure. Is there anything in the, in the process before, during, after that, that you would, you know, warn people against or, you know, hey, make sure you do X, Y, Z other than, you know, I think you've mentioned a lot of great things, putting together the right team and getting yourself emotionally prepared for the roller coaster and all the different different aspects, but anything else that we haven't hit on? I think part of it is, you know, I had a buddy that I encouraged him. He owns this company similar to what I sold, you know, much smaller. And I said, dude, at some point you're going to want to sell this company. You need to go out and, and field some offers. And he just didn't want to do it. But I think you need to start these conversations probably years in advance. I mean, five years, seven years, 10 years, whatever in advance. So you can understand what they're looking for, what the process is going to be like. You can pick their brain frequently. They're willing to, to tell you, give you information that you're going to need in the future. You might set up your books in a certain way so that I know in the beginning I had my books a certain way and they're like, we don't really like this. It doesn't read right to us. You know, it just doesn't flow like, you know, so then they sent me a P&L of a company that this made more sense to them. You know? <laughs> and, and it, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, I can make those changes. It's not a big deal. You, you know what I'm saying? And, and it did make more sense. So you can make that simple change just by having a conversation and you understand what your business is worth and you understand what val- what's going to bring value to the table. You know, if you're selling millions of dollars of widgets and they don't like widgets, you're just, you know, you're just churning money. You know, if they want shovels and they love shovels and they're worth 10 times more than widgets in their world, you need to sell more shovels. And it can be that simple. You know, I know my industry, parts of it they disliked and parts of it they loved. So I just got rid of all the dislike stuff. And did more of the stuff they loved, you know, and, and it's the crazy part is they all think the same, right? So if there's 10 PE companies, they're literally looking for exactly the same thing. I mean, within a small, you know, spectrum there, but they're looking for the same characteristics out of a, 
a business in that field. They just are, right? And you, if you build it as close as you can to what they're looking for, you're going to have a large group of customers wanting to buy your business. For sure. Yeah, we can, we can, we can go on for hours on this stuff, but I appreciate it, Chad. Part two, exiting a, a company from a, a multimillionaire. Thanks for coming on the show again. Hey, thanks for having me. I could talk for hours on this. I, I found it fascinating and I learned something every time I talk to people. And I guess that's why, you know, I always got in front of people and asked them questions and learned and, and I told them I didn't know a lot, right? Cause I didn't, but I wanted to learn, you know, I don't try to act like I'm the smartest guy in the room with, with this stuff. Cause it's, it's not my world. It's, it's your world, right? It's not my world, but I need to play in the PE world to have a, a, a transaction. So I have to get as educated as I can. So you know, don't be afraid to ask questions. Awesome. Thanks, Chad. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Jace Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website, millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire. Millionaire.